Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. My name is Joe Lowry, and on today's show, myself and Jordan Angeli dig into two teams with new coaches and new tactical approaches. Hey, that rhymed. We start out with Phil Neville's balanced Inter-Miami team before chatting about Hernan Losada's all-gas, no-breaks, injury-plagued DC United. Let's get into it. Two more new coaches today, Jordan Angeli. Let's start out with Inter-Miami. They have four points so far this year under Phil Neville. One loss, one win, and one draw. It's nice to, to keep things even and symmetrical. Jordan, what are we seeing from <laughs> Phil Neville? Because that's really what we want to do here. We want to talk about how these teams are playing, right. even in the early stages of this season. How do they set up? What are they trying to do with the ball, without the ball? Hit me with whatever you'd like to start out with. Well, first, I would imagine Phil Neville and Inter-Miami would like it a little bit more lopsided towards the front of that <laughs> standing, so three, with three at the beginning and some zeros Probably after right. that. But yeah. hey, we'll keep, it, we'll keep it symmetrical for right now. When we talked about Phil Neville in our preview of the incoming coaches, one of the things we noted is his work with the English women's national team and how they like to play out. And I feel like I see a lot of those same similarities to how he's playing right now. It's a 4-2-3-1. They want to play through the lines. And the biggest thing I feel like I see from Miami so far is they want to get connected with that number nine, that player that's up front, whether it's Iguain or Pizarro was playing in the last game. It's a lot of playing through that player. Have you noticed that as well, Joe? I have noticed that, Jordan. I wrote a little bit about Inter-Miami after week one, after that loss to the Galaxy. And I, I included in the article I wrote for MLSsoccer.com this clip of Gonzalo Higuain dropping deep. He would, he would drop down almost into midfield to become this playmaking type number six for a split second. He'd get on the ball, pick it up from the midfielders or from the back line, and then play the ball forward into the front line and then make his run into the box it almost reminded me of what Wayne Rooney used to do for DC United when he was playing as that number nine, but we all know he's not really a number nine. He, he would drop it, or at least he wasn't for Ben Olsen at the time. So yeah, it's this uh-huh. it's this number nine being the most talented player on the field, dropping deeper to pick up the ball and then do things creatively. Well, Wayne Rooney and Phil Neville, I mean, they might have played a few games together and that <laughs> might have been some of the tactics that he has built into his coaching style as well. And I think that's what's really interesting is when you say connect through the number nine, and this is something I had noted with Phil Neville with the English team. They have Ellen White up there, who's one of the best forwards in the world, and they like to get her the ball. They like to connect through her and get her involved. And I think the more that you get those players involved, whether it's Iguain or Pizarro, the more effective they can be in dangerous areas. And I feel like that and it's not every time but they're always looking for that ball that line splitting ball where they can connect in with the number nine whether it is in between the lines or a little bit higher up I think in their last game Pizarro played more on the back line so that was one of the big things I noticed right away of how they want to play out did you notice any should we stay attacking why should we talk about a few other things you've seen attacking from them yeah we'll stay with the ball for Miami I think something that balances their it balances the fact that they have that central attacking threat dropping in. And you're right, we did see it weirdly less with Pizarro as that nine, even though he's typically their number 10. He was slotting up there for that game against Nashville, that nil-nil draw. We, we see those players drop in, Pizarro less than Higuain, but still. And it's balanced out by the fact that they have a vertical threat on the right wing, Lewis Morgan. And this is the guy we probably talked about most last season for Inter Miami in a really disappointing season under Diego Alonso, I think really their brightest light was 
Lewis Morgan on that right wing. Taylor Twalman, I thought, made a really good point on the broadcast of that Nashville-Miami game on ESPN on Sunday, talking about how he provides the verticality that balances out the fact that they have those central players drop in. I think it fits really well. And mm-hmm. that even speaks to a larger point. If you have the nine dropping and you have the right winger stepping in behind and making those vertical runs, it all fits together. It all, it, it's like one piece fits here, one piece fits here. Phil Neville, and this is my big overarching point on Phil Neville, I don't think he's done anything mind-blowing, tactically speaking, yeah. for Inter-Miami. It all seems to fit very well. And there's a lot of different pieces that we can talk about, but it all fits in very logically. This piece fits here, this piece fits here. Mm-hmm. He's kind of adopted the... Bruce Arena, Brian Schmetzer's style of coaching, at least as far as I can tell from the outside, where these guys set up a logical game plan. It might change a little bit from game to game. It might change a little bit from season to season, but they're, they're rolling out a system that puts their players in good spots. And for Miami, it hasn't had incredible success to start the season, but it is a very logical approach. And I think we're seeing little bits and pieces of that actually paying off so far. But if you're if you're watching that national game, I know it was nil nil, but there were quality chances on both sides and really good saves by the goalkeeper, some good line, you know, some good saves in blocks even by the the defensive line. So it's not as if Miami wasn't creating. And you mentioned Lewis Morgan on the right, but I also liked how they play on the left because they're using Leardom as a left outside back, and he can get forward as well. So they're tucking in their left winger as a pocket winger, almost a, a second number ten at times. It looks like so then if you do use Morgan on getting through on the right side well then you have numbers already built into the way that you're tactically setting your team up to get in the box and be prepared for a cross that he might provide yeah with with Inter Miami I've noticed one fullback going forward and one staying a little bit deeper we really saw that against Nashville where where Joven Jones pushed up way higher and Leardom stayed a little bit deeper I think that was because Nico Figal was supposed to start that game as a right back. And then he uh, comes up with an injury in warmups. And so Leardam then has to slide into that spot. And so Miami still kind of played with three center backs. We hadn't seen that in week one or week two. But it's that it's that idea. And that was a much more extreme version. But it's that idea of balance. Mm-hmm. Again, where one fullback right. goes higher, one stays a little bit deeper. And you can still have that front line of players spaced out. You have the number nine, you have Pizarro if he's that 10, or you have Victor Ulloa if he's that 10. Then you have Lewis Morgan on one side, and then you have Robbie Robinson and uh, and then Joven Jones on the left side mm-hmm. in a perfect world, probably, for Inter Miami. It all fits. The pieces make sense. Jordan, a big part for me of the pieces making sense is a gentleman that they signed this offseason, and that's Gregory. That's a Chris Henderson special right there, baby. <laughs> he's come in, and we talked about him before the season started. He's come uh-huh. in and brought the things that we thought he was going to bring. He brought that grit, that grit to go toe-to-toe with Jose Martinez, for example. Uh, but he also brings a lot more quality in possession than I was expecting based off of what I'd seen from him in Brazil. Am, am I way off on that, or have you seen him do some pretty nice things in possession as well? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one of the things that we've noted in when we're studying players that are coming into the league, it's not as if we have all of the access to everything to, to really know what we're getting into. We, we're not the scouts. We're not Chris Henderson and his scouting <laughs> okay. team who's gone and watched multiple games. We're doing our best to, to figure out what we know about these players. And we knew that he was going to have the physicality. He was going to have the defensive presence to allow Matweedy to not have to take and shoulder so much of it, which I think is, again, the balance you were talking about, even in the midfield. But he has done some good things on the ball, and I feel like he doesn't have to, but the fact that he can bring that aspect of a a ball-playing midfielder is an extra benefit. 
What I'd imagined is that LGP and Nico Figal maybe being that starting center back pairing, you, you pair those guys up with Matuidi, and I, I thought those three players would be the primary passers. You know, when Miami are building up a little bit deeper, even when they're trying to break teams down. And then you add Pizarro into that mix as well, centrally. But I don't think it's actually turned out to be that way at all. I think Gregore has taken up as much responsibility to help Inter-Miami build out as any one of those other players I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Miami are trying to build possessions from deep. They're trying to build out from the back under pressure. We saw that a little bit, a little bit against Nashville this past weekend. I pulled up the stat. Miami have the seventh longest possessions in the league so far. They're Ooh. not just saying, okay, we're going to be pragmatic. We're going to, we're going to play the ball over the top to, to Iguain and have him chest it down and then play Morgan in behind. They are doing some of that, sure. But they're also taking a little bit of time on the ball. And there's an argument to be made that maybe the possessions become a little bit listless at times and become a little bit purposeless at times. But I like the fact that they are trying to use the quality they have in deeper areas to actually progress forward in a systematic way. Yeah. Two things on that. One, when I was talking about them, including the number nine, I think it can be both of those ways that you just said. Direct playing through the lines, but also through their possession buildup and trying to get that player involved in the possession. So that's one thing. And I think you noted that really well with what you were just saying. Two, when you're a team and you maybe don't know where your possession is leading, I think it's easier to find the end result of possession than to try to build that into your team Um like, I would rather have a team who doesn't quite know what to do yet or the the long possessions don't lead to anything than being a team who can't keep possession and mm. still, like, you know, maybe gets a couple of chances, but no more, no less than a team that has more of the possession. I think that's going to benefit them more in the long run than being on the other side of things. If that – does that make sense to you? No, no, it does because – I think we see as as seasons begin, as each and every Major League Soccer season or anywhere around the world, as the seasons begin, we see a general lack of sharpness. And when you're not mm-hmm. sharp, it's really hard to execute those really small moments that create chances. It's hard to break teams down in the final third against a low block. It's hard to hit that final ball with the right weight. And, and that stuff often comes and it's usually the last thing to come, at least exactly. from my experience watching games. So it's almost it almost seems to me like it's impossible to put the cart before the horse and to say, okay, we're just going to create chances immediately without building up in deeper areas or without being able to execute the rest of our offensive game plan. Some teams mm-hmm. might actually prefer that. You might just want to come into the season and actually be able to create chances, but you can't do that. At least not that I've seen. It takes a special team to be able to do that right off the bat. And so having a team like, go ahead. I was going to say, and to do that game in and game out, create chances all yes. the time with no tactical plan. Just say, okay, let's go figure it out. Yeah, especially when two of your first three games are against the Union against Nashville, two of the strongest <laughs> defensive teams in this league. Right. So so coaches like Phil Neville, I think, should be pretty content with the fact that they are able to do some things with the ball. And, and ideally, once Iguain and Pizarro and Morgan get more opportunities to play together, they've only had two games, all three of them on the field. Then you bring on uh, Federico Iguain later in the game. You have talent to create chances. Now it's just a matter of, well, mm-hmm. is that stuff actually going to happen? Before, Jordan, before we move on to D.C., we should quickly talk about the defensive side of things for Inter-Miami. What are they doing without the ball, Jordan? What's happening when Inter-Miami are not in possession? The main thing that I've noticed, and I don't know if this will be exactly what we see with every single 
game, but they're they're defending in a four four two mid block, staying pretty yeah. tight between their lines. But then when the ball they want, and maybe this was just against Nashville and knowing that they could maybe pounce on the outside backs. But when the ball was pushed to the outside backs and not through the central midfielders in a Nashville buildup then they would jump that and try to and go more into mm. a 424 press and try to see if they could if they couldn't win that initial ball into the outside back or create a turnover there then they were ready for that entry ball into the target player and winning the first and second balls in those those situations so that's really what i've seen from miami defensively i've noticed similar things miami don't have a lot of interest in high pressing yeah, they yeah. will in moments, just like every team will in moments, but they're a mid-block 4-4-2 kind of team that will then transition into a 4-2-4 or into a number of different shapes in little mm-hmm. tiny moments. But their their goal is to spend time pressing in the middle third of the field to constrict space in those areas and then win the ball. And then then they can go forward a little bit more directly after they win in the block. You have Lewis Morgan, you have Jovan Jones and Kelvin Leardam who can overlap and provide a lot of danger in those spaces. You have Grigori, who's actually been one of the better dribblers in Major League Soccer so far this year. He's willing to take a player on in the middle, and then Pizarro as well can can dribble a little bit. You've got Iguain then in the box. The pieces, mm-hmm. again, the pieces fit together, whether yeah. Inter-Miami are attacking in, in building up in deeper spaces or whether they're winning the block, uh, winning the ball in their block and then counterattacking. It all seems to make sense to me. Now it's just a matter of whether it making sense to me will actually translate into points in a successful season for Phil Neville. Yeah, agree. <laughs> We'll see. There's a long, okay. long season ahead. <laughs> there is a long road ahead. Our weekly reminder, uh, take all this with a big old grain of salt, like like the biggest grain of salt you can find, uh, mm. maybe a little bit smaller than the grain of salt needed to be for week one or week two. Every week, <laughs> maybe just, just take a few licks of the salt lick and it'll go down a little right, bit. Right. <laughs> but big grain of salt, people. This is week three. There's a lot of season left to be had. There's a lot of season left to be had for Hernan Losada's DC United, which is a good thing for them, Jordan, because they have been absolutely ravaged by injuries. They played with a short bench in all three of their games so far, two losses and one win for Losada so far in his career. The injuries have come, it seems to me, and it seems to me based off of things that players have said, like Paul Ariola, I believe he told The Athletic, these injuries are, a lot of them are coming from the fact that Hernan Losada is running these guys ragged in training. Jordan, they've had so many players drop from, it seems like, muscle-related injuries in training because the players weren't fit enough for what Losada wanted them to do. Joe, that's something that we spoke about when we previewed him as well, is we knew that he was going to be, he wants to be on the front foot, as we hear a lot of coaches say. He wants, he has a vertical game. And when you're asking a team to play very vertical, you are asking that they be extremely fit. And it's something that I think we've seen in let's, let's go to uh, Jurgen Klopp and how he's built his teams over the years. Almost some of the players get weeded out because they can't, they can't stay with what the demands are of the game that he has. I I have a friend who works in the, um, the performance side of soccer. And we talked a lot about this, how you can build a team based on the players that can actually get the demands that you want as a coach. And I think right now, Hernan Lasada is asking a lot of these players and they, it's too much to start. It was almost like, can we weave this in there saying, okay, this is how we want to play. We need four steps to get there. It's like he went from step one to step four and they're paying with the injuries. Have you ever had an experience like D 
DC United's preseason experience in the past? Or have you seen that or heard that from teammates or people you've been around when you're playing where you just come into preseason? And of course, all preseasons are yeah. going to be hard, right? Of course, that's, that's just the way it is. But a preseason that's so hard that players start dropping like flies a little bit. I, I haven't experienced personally a preseason like that. I have experienced a season with a lot of injuries and how difficult that is to manage uh, mentally and emotionally within a group because you are trying your best and it almost seems like as if nothing in your control is, is going to ha- help. But I think one of the, on the women's side, Paul Riley is a coach who demands a lot of his team, not only in preseason throughout the entirety of the year, but one thing that he has learned, and he has the experience to learn this because he's an older coach when you're talking about Hernan Lasada, he's on the younger side. He's learned how to program that into his season and when is asking too much, when is not enough, when can he get a little bit more fitness out of his team? Because they are a team, whether it was Western New York or uh, Portland in his days, now with North Carolina Courage, he demands a lot of them physically. And I think that's exactly what Hernan Lasada is going to do, is demand a lot from them physically. But he and his training staff, I think, need to evaluate how they can implement that in a safer way for their players because at the end of the day it's not helping right they they don't have enough players to even use the substitutions that they could use oh man it it is it's wild i think i saw i saw jamin moore on twitter who covers the san jose earthquakes and does a lot of awesome statistical things i saw him tweet about how this dc united injury problem is most similar to what happened with the earthquakes back when Matias Almeida took over. The styles are differently. The tactical styles are, are different, I should say, from Losada to Almeida, but they both require a lot of w- running. With Almeida, it's man-marking. With DC United, it's this aggressive pressing style, both really both with and without the ball. When DC mm-hmm. are without the ball, they're pressing high up the field. They're one of the most active pressing teams this year, in the final third especially, but then all yeah. over the field. They're all about getting pressure to the ball. But then when they have the ball, they're still pressing. They're still going forward. They're still moving aggressively with the ball out of this. In possession, it's, I guess, a 3-4-3. Three, three. Yeah, Even that's though, what I had. But it's it's almost more narrow than that. It's almost like a 3-4-2-1 with, with those two, I guess it's been Edison Flores and Yamil Asad tucking inside underneath Sorga and then mm-hmm. Gressel providing a little bit of width on the right. It's just so compact everywhere yeah. in all phases of the game. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. And I think, one, to go back to your San Jose Earthquakes reference, we saw the Quakes that year come to life later in the season when they yeah. got over the injuries, when they knew what was what was needed of them. So their preseason, actually, unfortunately for them, included a lot of their season where they weren't yeah. winning games. So it'll be interesting to know if that is something that happens here as well at D.C., I did, mo- I did notice that compactness. So it almost is a, um, even, even the way the three center backs play, they are so close to each other. They are a unit, those three, and they are shifting and moving from side to side as a unit. But in attack, I almost thought it, in attack was a, a three, five, two, because I was seeing Flores and Sorga. They want to play into Sorga and Flores either comes underneath him and Gressel runs in behind. So there's, constantly counter movements and that's what you're talking about if someone's checking to the ball there's always someone running into that space and beyond if someone is coming to the right there's there's a player countering that to the left so it's that type of movement when you're talking about pressing right and movement 
in attack. That's what I'm seeing that is demanding. And when I'm watching these DC United games, I am exhausted for the center midfielders <laughs> because they are running. I don't, I don't have access to stats like that. If somebody knows how to get those, but I want to see how much I was watching the New England game and Russell Knauss ran so much. I think he covered the most ground of any player um, that we've seen yet this, this year. It was incredible. They, they really do have to run a lot because of the style, number one, but then also because of what they're being asked to do within that mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. When DC defend, it becomes less, uh, it really does become less of a 5-4-1, which would be the natural resting shape for the 3-4-3-3-4-2-1. It's almost like a 5-2-3 or, or the midfielders are just separated from the back line and they're separated from the front line. They have mm-hmm. their own unique job, as far as I've seen it, where they are the ones responsible for stepping high to cover the front three in the press and to pick up the opposing central midfielders. They're the ones responsible for shifting to the near side when the ball goes that way, shifting to the far side when the ball switched. They have to cover ground because they're almost just on an island. And when you have players like Russell Canals, who didn't play against San Jose, when you have players like uh, Felipe uh, or, or Moreno who can cover that ground and do that job, I can understand a little bit why Hernan Losada sets up this team this way. Yeah. Another reason I think he sets up this team this way, it's probably rooted in his own tactical convictions, but also because DC don't have a Carle Seal. They don't have a Pozuelo, who we still haven't seen in MLS this season. They don't even have a Ladero, who's not even quite that type of through ball threading number 10. Mm-hmm. DC's most talented attacking player is probably Flores, but he's not... He's not a ball-dominant number 10. I don't even think when he was playing as a 10 in Liga Mekis, he was that kind of 10. He likes to dribble. He likes to play some passes, sure, but he, he likes to go downhill. DC don't have this number one playmaking type of guy. And so what they're counting on is, is what the Red Bulls have counted on for quite some time. They're counting on their defensive work and their offensive aggressive style of play to be their playmaker. And to be honest, mm-hmm. it hasn't really worked so far this year. They beat NYCFC in week one, but they scored a couple of really, you know, really awesome goals, but really fluky goals in that game from Heinzeich and then Kanaus. But they're hoping that as the season progresses, that their style, their pedal to the metal, all gas, no breaks, Red Bull type of style will start to create chances for them. And that's a big gamble, yeah. but I think it's actually a pretty sensible gamble looking at what DC United have personnel wise, even once all their players come back from injury. Right. And going back to, to those, the thoughts that you're talking about, but also when you were saying they play really narrow, I think that's one of the reasons that they play re- really narrow is when they transition and they can get forward. If they're narrow, they have a lot of players that can combine or win the ball back in the area of this field that the ball is going to be with then uh, maybe Gressel going wide, one player stretching wide to be uh, option for a cross or a dribble to the end line. So I think that there is real purpose in their reasoning to play narrow. We just haven't quite seen the the fluidity of that and how it is going to go forward. I think there there are there have been a couple of times where they do break out and you understand why they're set up the way that they're set up. Um but whew, <laughs> they better be sleeping a lot because it is a lot of running. <laughs> I think Jordan Jordan and I are, are both tired from just talking about it. And Jordan, you're certainly <laughs> right. tired from watching it, imagining what those players are doing. Yeah. I want to talk about important players before we let this be. Yeah. Can I can I say one thing before we go to players yeah, about their defensive structure? Because you mentioned it's not like a resting. It's like a 5-2-3 maybe in defense. But I actually think that they play um, with their wingbacks in a, a different way. They almost use... 
it it depends on where the threat comes from. The opposing side wing back sometimes tucks into to be another central midfielder and and leaves it in a four back then with the strong side wing back as a say right back and then the line of three center backs next to them. So I like how they have some fluidity in the way that they're back three slash five play. It can look like a four back. It can, they can add a player to the midfield tucked inside or pressuring an outside back. I, I think it's really interesting. And, um, that's one of the things that I've always struggled with with a, a three, five, two, when you drop those players too far deep, I just, I, I don't like the way it feels or looks. And uh, as a player, I don't think I would like to execute that. And so I think the fluidity of those wingbacks, it makes it more interesting, especially then if you tuck that player inside. Again, you win the ball, that player's central, and you can press forward in that narrow um, structure that we spoke about. So that's the one thing I want to talk about defense. Well, and, and that makes sense. And that actually ties in well with, with one of the players I wanted to talk about real quick. And that's Julian Gressel. He's playing as that right wing back for DC United, but he will tuck inside. He will almost become part of that front three at times. Yeah. And, and Flores or Assad will drop a little bit deeper or it, it's fluid. And we've heard Losada name drop Marcelo Bielsa multiple times before talking about his coaching style. There aren't a lot of similarities in terms of what DC is trying to do with the ball, but in terms of their, the pressing and in terms of a little bit of, a little bit of their fluidity in moments, there are similarities. You can see how he's been inspired by Bielsa. Julian Gressel is the poster child, along with Paul Areola, really, for fluidity in general. Julian Gressel is a player who played as a central midfielder under Tata Martino for bits and spurts of his time with Atlanta, which I honestly had totally forgotten about until this exact moment. Gressel can play as a winger. He can play as a number eight. He could, he could probably even play as a six, although I don't think I'd try that out. Right back, right wing back. I mean, all these different spots. Gressel can do that. Paul Areola, when he does recover from the injury that he picked up with Swansea, not in preseason, when, when Areola is back and fully fit, he's another guy who could play a whole bunch of different spots. We could even see the shape change for DC United. I think it, it could almost look like a little bit more of a 3-5-2 more consistently. Areola and Gressel are just two examples of guys who are so fluid. And, and I think both of those guys, we've already seen it with Gressel, but both of them are really going to be important key players for this DC United team as the season goes on. Mm-hmm. I even wonder if you could play Gressel as one of those, if it is two number 10s behind behind a nine in Sorga, say that sure. there's two players there. If you could play Gressel in one of those two spots, demand a little bit less of him defensively, but you'd have to have a wing back that can can add the presence going forward on the fly like Gressel can, which which is difficult. But I do I do like playing him centrally because I think he he picks and chooses the right times to play off a, a center forward, which we saw him do in Atlanta, or pull wide if he has the freedom to do that, which you do in in the system that they're playing. The, the space is wide, and he could pick and choose when to utilize it. So he is really key for them. We knew that from the beginning when they brought him over last year. It's just how does he fit in, and I think they're still trying to figure that out. A lot of DC's attacking plan right now, even though they are still trying to build it and to figure out what it's actually going to look like, a lot of their attacking movements come down that right side anyway. They come mm-hmm. with crosses yeah. from Julian Gressel, which is, that's one of the main holdovers from the Ben Olsen era, because I think every coach comes in and sees this guy can whip in a ball if we struggle to create chances yeah. in central spaces like DC are right now. Understandably, just like we talked about with Miami, if we can't really create in the middle and our system is maybe not even designed to do that in the first place, why not have Julian Gressel whip a ball in to our number nine, which hopefully at some point for DC will be Ola Kamara. 
But mm-hmm. right now, just whip a ball into the box and, and hope for the best. It sounds so remedial. It sounds so basic, but it is effective in certain ways. And Gressel, as that right wing back, can provide a lot of that creativity. Yep. I'm with you on that. That was fun. That was fun. Are there any other players for DC that you wanted to hit before we before we leave it? Or do you think we covered the basis of the the basics of the players who actually aren't injured right now? Yeah, I think I think that's good. You know, I'm I'm most curious about the three center backs. I think they do have three pretty good players there. It's it's can they figure that out and stay together enough to um, take and and control some of the pressure that they're going to have against them coming forward. But I, I do think if you're building a three back, those are pretty th- three pretty solid players to build off of. Yeah, I I really like Brandon Heinzeich, actually, not just because yeah. he scored a banger in week one, but I think he's comfortable on the ball. He can do a lot of different stuff that I that I really enjoy. Joe, he gets forward. Yeah. A lot. Too. Yeah. He'll like go on a run, which is a part of that extra, extra, um, extra emphasis. running. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we might even see more of that when Donovan Pines comes back. He's injured mm. right mm-hmm. now. After preseason, I believe he's one of the casualties from that. I think he could end up being that center center back and then giving Heinzike even more cover to push forward or, or maybe it'll look different. I don't know. But I, I like Heinzike and I did want to. Or you put Heinzike as a wing back and then you put Grass essentially. <laughs> I mean, solved it. I, Solved yeah, it. I don't Just think call Lis- us. I don't we're think Lasada's going to do that. We are we're tactical consultants now. Um, we'll put our phone <laughs> numbers in the bio in the in the notes for this show. We're not going to do that. Jordan, let's get out of here. It's been fun. Yep. Thank you for taking the time to chat sock with me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joe. <laughs> Listeners, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back again soon.